Today's episode of 20th Century Popcast is brought to you by Buttwells, the cookie made by the seat of your pants. Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Popcast, the show where we try to understand the present while living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins, one of the hosts here, and uh, we got a special uh, episode today. Why is it special? Well, um, I can tell you right now. Uh, something my co-host Bob, who unfortunately is, is not here today, but something he and I are working on is to set up a Patreon page for, for this show, for this podcast, 20th Century Podcast. Um, Patreon, if you don't know, is, is an online crowdfunding platform where you, the fans, can pledge a certain financial donation per month that would uh, help support the production costs and, and, and eventual growth of, of this show. And in exchange, God, I'm having trouble talking. What am I, thrilled, excited, just reading text and spitting on myself? <clears throat> in exchange for these pledges that I, I mentioned before that weird moment of talking, uh, you would gain access to bonus material, and this material would be exclusive only to, to the Patreon supporters. Uh, now, we're still in the design phase of the Patreon page, but we are aiming to launch it in November. So uh, what we thought we could do today is give you a little uh, sneak peek uh, glimpse at what some of this bonus uh, content might sound like. So something we will be offering through the Patreon page is a monthly download called Unsolicited Commentary. And and what that will be um, is an MP3 conversation between myself, Bob, and another guest, wherein we talk about and over the length of uh, one of our favorite films. You know, it's like audio commentary on DVDs, and it'll be designed so that you can either listen to it on its own or, or sync it up with your own copy of the film and hear us talk right over it. So today I'm giving you my uh, own take on the 1982 Jim Henson puppet horror, The Dark Crystal. Um, I'll share some thoughts, a little history of the film, and, and hopefully you can enjoy that. My take? Is that how I phrased it? Sorry, I'll give you my take. Uh, fucking whatever. But So how do you sync it up, this take? How, how, do, how do you make it work with your film? Well, that's quite easy, easy, actually. It's pretty easy as long as you own the film. Uh, just queue up your DVD, VHS, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, or, or digital download, and um, you know, uh, hit play and, and hit pause on that opening very first second of the film. And then on this track, you, uh, once you hit play on this track, once we get to the commentary, you'll hear the official six-second countdown of five monotone beeps followed by a higher-pitched sixth beep. After that beep beeps, unpause the movie and my voice should be synced up, you know, give or take a syllable, and it'll be smoother conversation than what I just said. Uh, so, you know, let's get right into it, as this is a long one. Uh, here comes the episode, and then after the episode, stay tuned uh, just to hear some classic closing commentary from me, Tim Blevins. Oh God, that was awful. So, now that I've ruined your... Uh, podcast intro experience let's move on to ruining your movie experience hey everyone ever <clears throat> sorry about that uh welcome 
to unsolicited commentary, an upcoming uh, monthly download that will be available on our Patreon account. And in it, I, uh, one of the podcast hosts of 20th Century Podcast, Tim Blevins, and a guest, normally today it's just me, I will be talking in real time and real length over one of our favorite movies, least favorite movies, movies we've never seen. Somehow we'll be providing an audio backdrop com- uh, commentary uh, to a film that you can sync up and play live, as you're doing right now, hopefully. Tonight's film is The Dark Crystal, a 1982 Jim Henson and Frank Oz production entirely of puppets and sets. If you're watching it, that's impressive. If you're not, that's just me telling you it's impressive. But um, it's a children's movie, I guess. And if you're you're of a certain age, maybe, if you grew up in the 80s, early 80s, I'd say probably more so mid-80s, because I actually don't know a lot of people who went to see this in the theater. But definitely it was a VHS, VCR, cassette rental staple of people growing up. This was a movie... <clears throat> I feel a lot of people as children, as under 10 years old, saw saw multiple times because everyone knows Jim Henson's name. Everyone likes the Muppets. They're adorable. Big Bird, he's a Muppet, I think, right? Sesame Street, you know, walking around, but people like that. And so to know that they were doing a different movie with puppets, who wouldn't want to see that? Well, it's not that I wouldn't want to see that, but I was definitely not prepared. Dark Crystal as you're seeing right now, is a beautifully frightening-looking film based on the designs of Brian Froud. Brian Froud is a fantasy artist you might know from the Pressed Fairies books. They were popular, I think, in the 70s, 80s. Definitely did the designs for the next Jim Henson movie, Labyrinth, which I think he actually might be more famous for. But Dark Crystal, Dark Crystal represents the first time anyone is trying to bring any of his drawings to life. And this movie constantly, the backgrounds anyways, do look like drawings, do look like paintings. In fact, <clears throat> and we'll get to the puppets and everything in a minute, but The Dark Crystal, for me, for me as a viewer, for me as someone who experienced it, I first experienced this movie as illustrations. I mean, it came out in the summer of 82. I wasn't of the mind that I got to pick all the movies we went to. It was the summer, so I'm sure we saw E.T., the extraterrestrial. We saw that at the drive-in. But The Dark Crystal, I don't think I saw any clips of it. I know we saw a trailer for it. Now that I think about it, we saw a trailer at the drive-in for E.T. for Dark Crystal because I remember a couple images. But beyond that, I don't remember TV commercials. I don't remember seeing footage. I don't really know what the characters look like, save for a prized possession of mine that I must have gotten towards the end of the summer. I don't even think it was when it first came out, but towards the end of the summer, I was kind of in the comic books. I liked some comic books there. Marvel Comics used to put out these things called Super Specials. And uh, Super Specials were oversized comic book adaptions of movies of the time. Most of the time they were... The, the Marvel used to adapt movies, Return of the Jedi, Howard the Duck, Buckaroo Banzai, Blade Runner, and they'd release them in three or four issue runs. And then they'd also collect them into one giant magazine, which is what these monthly or bi-monthly super specials were. And, and I had the Dark Crystal one. I should know the na- number of it, but I don't right now. Had a beautiful painted cover that showed some of the main characters, and it told the story. An illustrated format, and that's how I kind of learned the plot. 
I think I was reading at the time or someone wrote it to me. I, I'm not sure because I was going into second grade. Are you reading in second grade? I don't know. But this comic book for about two years was my exposure to what the Dark Crystal was. I knew it mainly as these drawings and something about drawings, scary drawings, frightening drawings in a comic book is they can, they can scar your mind, sure, but they're also approachable at your own pace. I mean, this continues into adulthood with things like movie adaptions of Sin City and Watchmen, but the focus on the 20th century... I could go from panel to panel, see the terror, see, see the fear of the storyline, but, but, but go at my own pace. Nothing was moving. I understood how illustrations worked. So, you know, <clears throat> that was maybe a little less frightening for me. But in the back of this super special, I remember this very clearly. There were probably about six pages, supplementary pages in the back of the adaption that were photographs that were on-set photographs, photographs of the puppets in the movie, photographs of the sets, photographs of the people operating the puppets. It it was like a making of, a background making of. And I I was fascinated by that section because it was probably the first time I saw how puppets worked. I was a huge fan of puppets and Muppets. And we should be talking about the movie soon. I'm sorry, if you are seeing this up, we're missing a lot of beautiful moments but what i wanted to say was that the the dark crystal <clears throat> is a movie entirely of puppets there's no humans moving around in it if it, when you watch it i mean there's water like right now that's real water maybe those are real lily pads but everything else in these these are things that people built these are sets these are props these are puppets that were fabricated that should look lifeless but don't and this is a very real looking world and Muppets are this, sure, but Muppets are felt and they're comical and they interact with people, Charles Grodin or, or, or Steve Martin or, or, you know, Sandy Duncan or whoever's on the show or kids on Sesame Street. They're always interacting and there's that blurring of the lines. This is an entire world that is um, <clears throat> presented via puppetry. And I don't think I, I mean, I loved puppets growing up as a kid and I had a couple. And it was the Dark Crystal that sort of blew my mind open towards what puppets could do. And these couple pages in the Super Special, before I'd even seen the movie and I was seeing how these things were built. I remember the Land Striders, they had very long, rigid poles for legs. We'll see those later. But like the, the Gen Puppet that we're seeing now and the Mystics that we'll see in a moment, I was captivated by these stills, these looks of them, with the people around them, molding them, setting them up, and trying to figure out, what am I? how does this work? What are they doing? Because there's still people in those photos. When I finally saw this movie, and again, it had to be a couple more years. I think we were on a family vacation somewhere. I think we were visiting a family. They had a VCR. So this must have been before 1984, so maybe just a year later. We didn't yet have a VCR, so the fact that they did was a huge deal. And they had this movie rented, I assume, or maybe taped off a TV. And we sat down, and we watched it, and I was familiar enough with the story and the characters to kind of have an in. But um, I very quickly, this is, I guess, what I'm getting at, is I very quickly abandoned the thought of trying to figure this movie out. They're puppets. They're not real people. They're effects. And yet, as we're going to see, with the exception of this Jen character, obviously, honestly, that's talking right now, this movie is pretty impressive in making you believe it. <clears throat> and I think that's what's kind of frightening. There's not only an otherworldly look to this, it's a unified otherworldly look. I mean, looking right now at this mystic and the, and the, and the gnarled old face that he has with all these knots and, and, and circles and markings, those kind of markings are throughout this movie. You can see it right now in the background. 
you can see the entwining curves and curls that mimic the, the skin of these things, the raised skin, the old withering hands and everything. They all have these weird patterns that I think are represented in the cloak. See it right there on the shoulder. You got the swirl mimicked on his face right there in the background. It's just, it's everywhere. It's this feeling of a real world, but it's all manufactured to bring a drawing to life. And I think that that was probably uneasy to me because I never immersed myself in something like that. Star Wars has real people and outer space worlds has fantastic. Like we were just saying, the Muppets have both this. Everything has to be able to exist in its world. And you trust it. You take it. You take it on its on its uh, on its merits, and and I think that was scary to me. I mean, right, you know, Jen does look like a puppet. It's a Kermit puppet with human eyes, not exactly, but enough. But everything else has a strange motion to it or movement to it that just seems like it could exist. I mean, this mystic looks a little bit like Patty Smith, the author. Now that she's no longer really Patty Smith, the singer, but outside of that. Beyond that, it looks like it's living and breathing. I mean, that's, that's some impressive puppetry work. And it's old, you know, and it's not cute. This world has some cute things, which we'll see, but it's, it's a gnarled world. And I think that was new to me as a child. And so now as we're finally going to start talking about the movie in real time, I, I think it's good to have that in mind that as a child, and I wasn't alone in this. Many people I've talked to have the same kind of reaction. This is a scary fucking film. That as a kid, I don't think I knew what it was about. And as we're going to find out, there there is something in this that's immoral that kids don't get granted that often. So it's it's kind of interesting to watch it now and wholly ag- agree with what it's saying and realize that this doesn't get said to kids. This is not an optimistic film. This is not a positive film. This is... This is a movie that, just to say, it, I mean, you've seen it, obviously, or you wouldn't be listening to me talk about it. This is a movie that posits the idea that neither absolute good or absolute evil can exist, that they need each other, that there's a balance of it, that they need both. And that's, that's, a, that's a universal theory, yin and yang, whatever. But this movie posits that you need evil as well as good, this weird balance to counteract. And I don't know, I don't, I don't feel like that's something kids are introduced to. And the fact that we're seeing with this grotesserie, I mean, look at these fucking things. If you're just listening to the audio and not watching the film, we're looking at the Skeksis right now, which are bird-like creatures of gnarled, skeletal skin tightly stretched across their body. The fucking emperor dying in bed. I mean, this is gross. These are grotesque characters that look kind of look like dinosaurs or something, I guess. And there's so much gasping and so much whimpering and, 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 and I don't know. It's, this is terrifying, right? Jim Henson had stated that he wanted to make something for children that represented the Grimm's fairy tales. And Grimm's fairy tales, I know some of the stories through Disney adaptions, ballets and all, but I don't know the gruesome Grimm's fairy tales. I mean, I think people used to terrify. This, by the way, is terrifying. That is gross. I think that we forget that it used to be part of entertainment to terrify children. I mean, I feel like 
Grimm's fairy tales are grotesque stories of kids oftentimes dying, being put in horrible peril, disgusting witches, cannibalism, torture. I mean, all sorts of horrible, horrible. This is really gross. We're watching one of the puppets decompose in a gnarled mess. That's nasty. Um, But stories that were there to sort of frighten children. And this definitely was one of those stories. The Dark Crystal, right now we're watching two characters that we just were introduced to die. One, the horrible decomposition. The other one is kind of just disappearing, fading from existence mystically like a Jedi. But I don't think they use that same effect when Yoda dies or something similar. Maybe it's easy to accomplish. I don't know. Maybe they have the same blanket. Maybe that's Yoda's blanket. That's pretty. They're, they're, they're kind of incorporating their life into the musical score of this film, which is interesting, I think. Look at that. They're beautiful puppets. They're creepy puppets. The mystics. I, they're called Urskex. Uh, no, well, I'm sorry. Urskex was the race they're from. There's a lot of backstory to this movie that I don't know if it was in original story notes or um, if it came from comic books later. Um, but the mystics are also called Uru, U-R-R-U, I think is how their race is, is pronounced. We'll get into that later. I mean, that's, that line is meaningful, right? I, I'm not ready to go alone. I think there is some relation, at least that I had as a kid, to to loners on journeys. I don't even know if I was a loner growing up, but Jen in this movie is, as far as he knows, the last of his kind. He's setting out on this task into the unknown to find someone he doesn't know. I mean, it's, it's your traditional classic hero's journey, I guess. That would be really good rod work on that puppet, right? No, it's probably somebody in a suit walking down the hill. So this movie has no people in it, but it probably has people in suits in it. So we're looking at Skeksis here, and, and the, the Skeksis, 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 I guess, they're one half of these creatures called Ursex, or Urskex, I think. They're creatures They came from another world. Um, and again, this, this is from the backstory of some comic books. I, I think there's a, 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 there's a Japanese manga, I think, called The Power of the Dark Crystal, and there was an American comic series called Creation Myths that delved into the, the, the history of these characters. And then so there was a, these creatures called Urskex who came to this world. I think this world is called Thra. They passed through the crystal, entered this world, and I think they, they, they spent, I don't know, a thousand years on this planet. And then there was a conjunction, this, the second great conjunction. And when that occurred... Um, it was the alignment, they talk about it a little bit, the, the, the alignment of suns and moons ignited the crystal in a certain way, and, and the, I guess the Urskex were trying to harness that power for themselves, which was greedy, and in doing so, shattered themselves into two creatures. They tried to harness the power, the power split them, and what was left were these characters, the Skeksis, and what I have always known as mystics, but I guess they're called Uru, peaceful creatures, and they're meant to represent... Oh God, this is this is dark. Here's some mindless slavery for you uh, with the pod people. The sad-looking puppets, but uh, these creatures were split, 
And so, um, you know, the first half were these sort of spiritual and, 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 and meaningful and pacifistic mystics. Um, and then there's these, the aggressive and emotional characters, and, and they're called Skeksis. Um, and they live in isolation. Both races live in isolation, but the Skeksis somehow were allowed to keep the crystal and uh, the mystics are kind of, they, they, they wander outside of it. And I don't know, there's something interesting going on where, where even though there's a royal class thing going on here, the Skeksis are scientists. The idea behind them is that they're methodical, methodical scientists. They're harnessing the crystal's powers through devices, through machinery. And they experiment on the pod people, uh, indigenous creatures to this world who we saw moments ago bringing bringing these swords in and I don't know I they're ruling class they're scientists that are cruel I mean they're Nazis right I mean that's a dark analogy for a children's movie maybe not that it hasn't been a dark movie already but I mean they're they're Nazis right they experiment on people they wiped out almost all the Gelflings but the one we saw and the one we'll see later the comparisons are there they're ugly, they're gross, they're driven by greed, driven by science. I don't know. Maybe may, maybe not. Maybe there's something else to them. But that that has kind of bothered me, right? A bit. They drill a lot. So we're watching puppets handle swords. And it's weird that there's so much drama in this because there's very limited movement. It kind of reminds me of the lightsaber fights in the original Star Wars versus the lightsaber fights in the latter-day prequels and how there was a lot of tension and excitement in seeing these blades waver a little bit and clang together without all the flipping around, jumping, and, and posing. There's not a whole lot of posing in 80s sword fights because we didn't have the CGI to maybe flip them around. I mean, these puppets, for all their beauty and movement, I mean, look at the eyes blinking on that and the hands quivering. They are bound by the reality of how physics works. They're physical puppets, so if you can get the hand in there and move them around, you can. If you can get them on a small person and move them around, you can. This movie predates computer animation. I feel like if this movie was made today, would these characters be CGI? Or at least some of their movements? Would they use that technology to further integrate them into the world? Which is weird because when you use CGI... To make a puppet or, or a prop or a stop motion seemingly more part of the world, you're, you're you're creating something digitally that's supposed to exist in a physical realm. So those two modes of of creativity should not mesh, and we see this. We see this in the Phantom Menace. I don't know if we're aware. Of, God, that is look at that gross puppet. These things exist in their puppet world, which is maybe why this movie is so captivating, because everything can touch and cast shadows and, and, and interact. And when you do it with computers, yes, there's a skill to that, there's a talent to that, because of course this is a fake world too. These things are not necessarily the size that the puppets make them out to be and all that. But I don't know, I think if this movie had utilized, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later, really, because we're thinking 1982, that's a long time. If they had utilized computer animation it may not have the impact and maybe that's why we're not seeing as many original kids movies anymore we see cgi animated movies of, of original topics like despicable me i think is an original story i don't think that's based on a comic book a lot of the pixar movies if not all of them are initially original concepts you don't see something like this as much anymore 
a world built just for the movie. I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's not as believable. Maybe people don't latch onto it. I don't know. I mean, do kids still watch The Dark Crystal? I know it has its fandom in 20 and 30-year-olds and myself 40-year-olds because I grew up with it. But do people show this to their kids? And do they get the fact that, I mean, look at the hair growing on that thing. It looks like Larry David. Larry David's real. So is that Skeksy, I guess. I guess-ky. There's a lot of voice work and motion work. And it's frightening. I mean, this is a frightening artsy movie. And I don't know what to compare it to. Because honestly, there isn't another kid movie who looks like this. We get Labyrinth uh, four years later from this. And it's the same designer, Brian Froud, the illustrator who came up with all these designs. Eventually comes up with all the Labyrinth goblins and creatures. But this looks different from Labyrinth. And again, it might be the absence of people. You don't have Jennifer Connelly. And I call them people, but the otherworldly presence of David Bowie, which is at least flesh and blood moving around. You only have puppets with puppets here, so maybe, and that's why it looks this way. Nothing else quite looks this way, because I don't know of another thing that did this. This is an example of sound overriding the visual. The Garthams are frightening uh, puppets, but they're made more so by that weird clicking sound. It just makes you think bugs crawling around. <laughs> nightmares. This movie knows nightmares, and for me, it's it's exoskeletons I you know I, I don't fear bugs but there is something about that crab-like look I remember having a nightmare as a child of something like a long worm version of the Garthen kind of crawling around under my bed and then there was an issue of that that was frightening to me and uninteresting probably to you Again, that must be a person in a puppet costume because of the amount of motion it's doing. But it works. I think it's when you see Jen run that it kind of stands out that those motions don't quite match the puppet movement because they're quicker thrilling motions when we run. But I think here, someone in a costume moving slowly, if I'm right, and I think I am, it's believable because puppets move in slow jerky motions too. God, that's look at that. This movie allows itself to take its time to just show you the world. We just saw those weird little look like sea anemones, but they're above ground, kind of moving. Stuff is always moving. There's rarely, well, this shot now is, to prove me wrong, there's rarely a shot without movement. There's just all these strange creatures. And a lot of it's this idea of plant life. There's a lot of living plant life, alien-looking plant life on this planet. And crustaceans, which are creatures of the sea which makes this world feel a lot more isolated because what we're used to, you know, two-legged and four-legged animals are not as prevalent here. So maybe that makes it all the more alien. Okay, and here comes an eyeball in someone's hand. That's disgusting. It's a bloody eyeball. That could very well be out of a cadaver's eyeball. Except you can kind of see the plastic around it that makes it work, but it's still kind of a cool effect. I'm talking, of course, about Agra. I think the most memorable character from this film, partly due to that gross intro where she's holding her own eye. But what a fascinating design this puppet is. What a fascinating character. It's Looking at her right now, it's the horns that most fascinate me. I mean, she's this gnarled, again, gnarled-looking purple creature, but she has ram horns on either side of her head that surprisingly are easy to miss. I think because she has all that other hair in the front that every time I watch this, uh, movie, I'm reminded that she has horns. I always forget that she does, but she has this weird goat-looking horn, which makes me think maybe she has goat hooves, too, from how she moves, but she's old, she's withered, 
it's just that constant trade of things in this world. It's all like it's all ancient, beaten down creatures, with the exception of the Gelfling. And it just gives it, I don't know, it, it, it gives this history to this, to this world. And there's a lot of backstory to Agra, um, not all of which might have been official at, at the time, but again, it's found its way into those comic book series I was mentioning before, uh, Creation Myths, Legends of the Dark Crystal, and maybe some of it's in the art books. I know there was a Brian Froud book of art for this. There's a making of book, and maybe that goes into it. But uh, according to some of that material, Agra is the oldest living being on this planet. I think the planet's called Thra. Um, she's older than the Gelflings. She's older than the Mystics and the Skeksis. And um, part of her appearance, I guess, was that she was badly burnt by the arrival of the Urskeks, that race of creatures I was talking about before. Um, they passed through the crystal during, I guess, the first of what I guess eventually are three great conjunctions. Um, you know, and again, they eventually separated the Mystic and Skeksis. But when they first arrived, she was trying to watch the conjunction. I guess that damaged one of her eyes. She has three eyes is another thing I always forget. God, that machine is beautiful. There's an impressive prop here of, of uh, showing planets and stars as mechanical balls moving in motion that I'd have no idea how this was designed or maintained. It definitely gives you the impression of complexity. But um, anyways, uh, Agra, when she tried to watch the conjunction, I think it blinded at least two of her three eyes. She got badly burnt, and the um, Urskex, when they arrived, yeah, that word sounds so real. Uh, when they arrived, they, they found her burnt, and they revived her. They rescued one of her good eyes, and they kind of formed a friendship. Um, Agra is like this Earth mother, although she's androgynous sort of character, that has always been on this planet, kind of like this goddess character. So she knows the planet in exchange for the knowledge of this planet. The Urskex built her this giant machine and built this what's basically a planetarium so that she could study the stars. Sort of this idea that they expanded her view of the universe, that there was more beyond the planet, and she educated them on how this planet works. She gives us the backstory here a little bit, at least the backstory that existed in the movie. But again, it's so vague here, which is beautiful. It's using big words that I didn't know as a child and the characters, races, and all of that. And it just it gives you the idea that this is an ancient tale that's known. And again, I don't know if that's official Henson backstory or extended fiction after the fact. I, I like knowing that history of the Urskex in Agra. You know, I like it now. It gives structure to this world, and it's interesting. But I think something that was fascinating to me as a kid watching this movie was how little of it I actually understood. You know, Agra lives this lonely life by herself. Jen is the only of his kind, kind of wandering around. Even the number of mystics and Skeksis were limited. There's something to this movie that is all about isol isolationism is the word I'm trying to say and just being isolated from all the knowledge and all the other people and, and I think that was important to me you know I, mean, I was an indoor kid I liked my private time but I also didn't understand my private time and you know I had great parents they encouraged me to get outside play in the sun join a club and I wasn't having it I didn't understand why and I don't know, I think this movie, at least in exploration, you know, it granted those feelings an output. Just the way she moves. I mean, you get the size that she's this old woman of girth. If she's a woman, you know, she's the only one of her kind, I think. She's not a podling, she's not a skexis or anything, but she is kind of multi-gendered 
you know, which I think was also fascinating to me as a child. She's a woman. It's how she's referred to, and it's her body type. But again, these are alien creatures, so she has some gruff attributes that are sometimes applicable to male gender. It's an interesting character, you know, and I think kids are open to interesting characters. I've remained open to interesting characters, and I think a lot of this movie seeks to challenge child expectations of story, cuteness, and maybe in her case, gender, in sort of a 1982 mainstream sort of way. Jen's not as lifeless as I thought. I mean, a, a key, I think, to a lot of these puppets is their eyes. I think when you look at the Skeksis, I think when you look at the Mystics and Agra, maybe it's their eyelids. Something about their eyes brings them to life the way that other puppets don't. And watching Jen right now, at this angle, he looks very real. That is an impressive puppet. Just sometimes he looks, again, Kermit the Frog-ish with the mouth, I guess. Is so funny. You know, for a movie that I guess this movie doesn't have much plot because it moves pretty fast. I mean, here we are, what, almost half an hour in, and we're getting the plot moving. I guess half an hour is a long time, but um, this I always remember this movie as a child. Remember it as being long and stretched out, but here we've got the Garthen attacking coming in. Jen's got his call to action right on time in typical three-act structure, 30 minutes in. He's, he's moving along because he's got the crystal he was supposed to take. And he's in danger. He's in peril. We're getting a sense that there's a hunt. There's a hunt on. Again, the pace of action was very different in the 80s. And I think a lot of that is computer animation because you were always, well, at least with puppets, I guess, however, however many action-packed puppet films there were, puppetoons and Thunderbirds and all, you're limited by the reality of these props, these pieces of art. They're not just props, but these puppets can't do the amazing flips and kicks that a CGI Kermit the Frog did in the Muppets Most Wanted, or even that a lot of the CGI Jedi actions from, I'm going to like Phantom Menace on this one. There's a couple of movies, like Darth Maul's a cool character because of how he moves and they're incorporating martial arts in a way they never did. But there are a couple CGI Darth Mauls that do kind of look phony kind of look fake and I think in this movie in this film you have slower action heightened by music but also just heightened I think again because it's bizarre characters in peril I mean that's that's gruesome they burnt down her home and were led to believe that she might be dead she's not as I ruin it for you later in the movie Agra is proven to come back but we don't know a lot of this time there's an uncertainty to this movie that I was not familiar with So here we're watching the mystics being kind of called to action, but that's that's inherently an interesting aspect to the mystics. They're supposed to be peaceful. They're supposed to be pacifists. And they are, but they're also they refuse to act. You know, they're pacifists in the worst sense that they just sit out their life. This is, I guess, contradicting that because they're on a quest to the castle, but it's like they forever lived in isolation. They knew of the crystal. They knew of its, of its existence, but they never went to get it. They never took any action on their own to thwart the Skeksis to save the planet. They waited. They waited for Jen. They waited for Jen's actions. And I don't know. There's a comment in there somewhere, and this ties into this theme where I think neither pure good or pure evil 
can necessarily exist. Because again, they're words and constructs we, we set up. But the mystics, while heroic, I guess, or at least while the good guys, I don't know if they're heroic. They're sloth a bit. They're sloth-like. They've settled into their quiet life and they refuse to impact the world around them. They live amongst the world and that's good, but they don't take action to protect it or save it. And I don't know if I got that as a kid. I, I like getting that now. You know, they refuse to take action. And that's an important attribute. They don't have drive. They don't have determination. They just have their quiet way of life, which I think is representative of splitting this, or this one creature into mystics and skexies. It's easy to understand the skexies as villains, but I think it's important to remember that the skexies are active. They're active in science. They're passionate. They, they, they're gluttons, but they, they live a life of activity. It's not maybe tethered or, or, or controlled properly, not properly, but it doesn't have the guidance of morality or kindness that the mystics have, but then the mystics don't have a drive to really help. They respect, but they don't help. They live amongst the land, but they don't help the land. I think there's a big political message in that that I don't know if I got as a child. So much of this movie is just looking at the sets, and I'm fine with that. I'm actually very fine with that. Look, watch, watch these plants. They're alive. So, many, so much of the plant life is alive. I talked over one of the more frightening moments that I love in this movie of, uh, of this hillside that this creature crawls into, and then the hillside closes because it's a mouth. It's just this idea that everything is living. Everything is a creature on this planet, and yet none of Hey, he's looking right at us. And yet none of it is recognizable as a two-legged being, except for Jen here. So we're about to meet another pretty impressive puppet, first with a jump scare that I'm prepping you for, maybe a little too early. I think a lot of people's favorite characters in this movie are coming up. The first being this scene that used to terrify the crap out of me as a child. Jump scare. Yeah, it is. A hand puppet called Fizzgig jumping out and startling Jen. And me as a child, I always hated that. There was the anticipation of it that was more scary than the actual effect. But knowing that was coming, I always jumped. But here is Kira. Kira is the other surviving Gelfling. In a lot of ways, I think the more believable-looking Gelfling... She's a female hero, which was great. I think she's probably a lot of people's crush, first crush on a item of felt, save for Janice from the Electric Mayhem. But uh, Kira's a great puppet. She actually is the namesake. She inspired the name of a character in the film I wrote, Substitute Culture. So clearly she has always stuck with me. There was something about her, starting from the early days of the comic book. Jen looks a little horse-like, I guess, but she definitely looks the female features, I guess which is sexist to say, but there's something to her look that was very alluring to me, that was fascinating. And she looks a lot like a Brian Froud drawing. His, his books of fairies, which I think outside of these movies is what he's most known for, his characters have her face, as do some of the goblins in, um, in Labyrinth. A lot of them also look very similar. We're actually seeing a couple other Gelflings in this flashback. I forget that. We're seeing them die, quite frankly. It's weird that we get so much of their backstory here in a very quick narration with some shots. I don't think any of this made sense. I remember the comic book explained this a little bit more with a splash page, but here it's sort of 
it's all at once. They're doing like a mind meld, and we get a little sense of the fact that they are a reminder, I guess, that they are the last of their kind, that their parents were killed, their families were killed, and how dangerous, again, these Gestapo of the Gartham is. There is a terrifying underlining historical reference point to this movie that is World War II. This keeps going. Um, the Kira puppet, interesting puppet. She's operated by a puppeteer named Catherine Mullen. And, you know, I was just doing a little research to find that out. It's, it's interesting to me because, and, and I think it's similar to animation, big screen animation. Each puppet in this film has a specific performer, you know, to maintain its character. Of course that makes sense. Same way, why, the same way I think like in Disney animation stuff, a specific animator works on a specific character. Um, to some degree you would think whoever's in the room that day picks up the puppet and moves it but no this this creates the character she creates the movements she creates the motion how the puppet interacts and maintains that to maintain the character she doesn't voice the character but um she definitely portrays kira all the puppet work um i mentioned her just because she, I, she had previously worked on the muppet show but she she worked a bit with frank oz frank oz who we all know as grover's voice bert's voice the director yoda's voice um, he co-directed this movie with Jim Henson, and I think he n noticed Catherine Mullen because the two of them worked on Empire Strikes Back together on the Yoda character. Um, and I think there are some similarities in those. It's odd. Yoda character is a single puppet in this world of reality, and we have to buy the puppet as part of that reality. The reverse in this is that everything is a puppet, and we have to buy everything as the reality. I'm not saying that that's easier. I'm just saying that you have puppets acting off of puppets and sets that are sets, so you're that's a gross slug. So you're able to sort of I don't know, they're both they're both huge accomplishments. I don't know why I'm rambling like this. It's strange because I'm not a huge fantasy fan normally. And I, I would I would deem this movie fantasy, you know, similar to like uh Lord of the Rings fantasy or something you know like it's a world of limited technology you have gears you have clock gears that operate that device in uh, Augur's place and you have the science of these Skeksis here sort of you know the crystal with the mirrors that control the pod people but it's a world that's you know it's rolling meadows the middle of nature it's swords and sorcery maybe I don't know if sorcery is ever mentioned but it, it, it's got that edge to it I think because of things like Agra because of things like the science behind the crystal like, and of course because of the pub puppetry and look at it but look of it I think why Augur is one of my favorites and why this movie can maintain my attention is it does have this addition of at least astrology and astronomy and that gives it a bit of a, I think I just don't like fantasy I know Star Wars is a fantasy but it's got spaceships and laser swords and cool characters that's important look at those fake nails this scene I think is supposed to be for laughs it's how much of a glutton these creatures are they're eating live creatures it's a mess they're royalty but they got food all over their face I don't know. I the, the one thing this movie does not have, and I wonder if this works against it because it doesn't have it going for it. Is this movie doesn't have much in the way of a, a of a sense of humor, or there's not much. There's humor, but there aren't many jokes. <laughs> like I don't laugh out loud at this movie. I think the way Agra talks is kind of funny. It's a funny character, and Kira has a, a line or two that's that's a joke, but. Yeah, this is a pretty grimly dark movie. And I think up until this, Jim Henson was pretty much equated with good-natured humor, clever humor, parody. I mean, The Muppets, Sesame Street, what is he? 
binging? That's gross. It's just kind of like you don't expect this dark side from Jim Henson. And yet, I think it's probably there. I think Kermit the Frog is an interesting character. I think of all the Muppets that is Jim Henson. I don't know what I'm basing that on other than I've I had seen him the most with it. But Kermit the Frog is, is a neurotic nearly losing it a character in this world. I mean, the Muppets are anarchy anyways. They're just a world of anarchy. But Kermit the Frog is their reluctant leader who's, I'm not convinced, ever happy with his position. There's a weird balance of, I got to put on a show. I'll give it my all. But then also just like, I can't put on the show. It's falling apart. It's behind the scenes, on the stage. And I think that's a nice insight into Jim Henson. I mean, he definitely was, you know, a very humanistic individual very optimistic in some way i don't know if he's optimistic he, you know a caring individual a human being who had a bit of the hippie mentality and sensibility but i think there was this thing behind it of just this things are getting out of control i can't take this sort of angle i think this movie shows you this there is a dark side to jim henson there has to be one for this movie to fucking exist but two for i think his work, and I know it's not just him, there's a lot of puppeteers involved, but we'll say it because his name Henson is on it. For Jim Henson's work to resonate with me, to maintain itself and continue to hit me, even now as an adult, a lot of that comes from that darker angle, I think. It touched something on me as a child that was grim or sarcastic or pained or fearful, and I didn't get it because it was under the guise of not these puppets they're not that cute but cute muppets cute felt you know with that on the top layer as a kid you see that while these other themes these painfully darker gruesome themes are allowed to i don't know soak in at least you know you experience it a little bit experience it a little bit i think with this movie you got a little bit of it and as i got older began understanding the darkness of the world, began understanding that things are not bright, cheery, and PBS produced. You know, the, the, the world is a cruel place. These movies resonate because they're saying that too. There's inklings of that in the movie planted in my head and seeing these images again sparks that memory so that as an adult, I can start to handle it. I think that's some of the power of children's literature that works. And maybe that's why the grim fairy tales were so grim. You know, they, they're an introduction at a young age. So as a child develops or grows and they form these opinions or thoughts or just have to enter the world, there's a little bit of prep work, you know, through cute, bizarre fantasy stories that are at least tinged with the harshness that is the reality of death of cruelty, of lies, of darkness, of, of, of human, human error. One downside of these commentaries, I guess, is if you don't watch it with the movie, I guess there are going to be quiet spots. Appreciate you listening if you are without the visual. And I hope if you do sync it up with the visual, yet you're, you're seeing what I'm seeing, which is, again, one of these long scenes of just here's the world. We're watching a puppet sing, a puppet play a flute as they flo- float through a beautiful scenic area, and it's all felt and plastic and metal and tubing and false. I'm amazed that it works. 
because the Muppets are puppets that are always talking or singing or coming right at you. And these puppets, these pieces that Jim Henson and his associates put together are allowed moments of non-conversation to exist. It's a real narrative, I guess. It's, it's, it's not breaking the fourth wall, which is something the Muppets always did. It's not teaching you the alphabet or how to count like Sesame Street did. And maybe that's the difference, but yeah, we're watching puppets for long extensions of time just move in beautiful shots like the shot of the mystics. And again, those are probably people in those suits. I mean, maybe they're puppets, but I, I would imagine they're people in giant hulking puppet suits. So the comic book I had, I think, is why I always think this movie is longer than it is, just because of how it's paced. I think it was three issues collected into one volume. So it had the rise and fall where each storyline would cut that felt like a self-contained story, whereas to watch it now, I mean, we're, I think we're halfway through already. And I'm basing this on my memory of the movie itself. Like when they get to Kira's village, which is where they are now, the pod people village, for a brief moment of really drunken debauchery, um, I feel like we're, we're the movie's moving along because we're getting close to the castle. It's a journey. It's it's weird. As I get older, all journey stories are actually pretty quick, with the exception of Lord of the Rings. Even the first five minutes of that are not very quick. But hero journeys, once you're familiar with them, maybe that's the thing. Once you're familiar with them, they move very quickly. So it's interesting that we go back to them because the first time when you're experiencing it, for me again, it was in the comic book, but in this movie. Everything is new, and you're encountering what you encounter as the hero. In this case, Jen, is encountering things for the first time. It's an introduction. It is the pace of a screenplay. But like anything, I guess, when you go back and watch it, you're familiar with how it works. The difference with a hero's journey is you now know the goal. You know what's going to be achieved. You know why the hero's on it. So all the doubt the character has, all the moments of uncertainty or the moments of introduction to you know the sage wizard and the comedian and and, and the gatekeeper and all, all just the you know the, the power myth joseph campbell stock wording all of that which is the structure of screenwriting when you're unaware of it is engaging and inviting and when you are aware of it i guess it makes the story move a little quicker it's still interesting it's still engaging but it, it's sort of like that's that's almost formulaic like you can break this down to that plot, same plot as Star Wars, same plot as Transformers the movie, the same plot as Little Shop of Horrors. It, you know, it's you know, it's a character who wants to leave their ordinary world for an extraordinary world. The case in this is that this whole world to us is extraordinary. So you had to have Jen exit a valley where he lived all his life, go into the wider world, and then encounter different creatures at different points and different obstacles. And that's the extraordinary world. And, you, and you're going through this so that ultimately he can return to his world a hero, if you like my quick three-sentence explanation of that power myth book that's sitting on the bookshelf in my bedroom. Went Emerson four years with this on VHS. I don't know why I went to college if I could have just garned, garnered, gained, garnished, gotten that knowledge off of, uh, off of this. And here they are again. Seriously, the Garth and break into scenes. It, it's it's rep, 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 repetitive. God, I'm killing this commentary by stuttering. It's repetitive a bit. Like they broke into Agra's castle while the exposition was still being handed to you <laughs> while Jen was still picking out his diamond his, his crystal this time they break into the pod peoples during a moment where we're allowed to breathe like oh it's a nice night for the gelflings so they come in and they tear shit up 
No mercy in this film. It's cruel. I am sure podlings, pod people are dying here. And we cut back to the mystics who are again wandering. I guess they're. I know I said earlier they were failed. They were bystanders. They they don't act. They don't take part. And I don't know. They're on their way. The mystics on their way to the castle because they know what's going to happen. But I'm not. I still not convinced that they want to be anything but spectators or even just part of it. They might believe in the you know the lack of free will in some ways. The mystics believe in prophecy, believe there is a future ahead of them, so therefore they don't have free will. That's sad. Look at that sad freaking baby puppet all by itself. Scary. I don't know. There's something to the mystics that is very... I don't know. There, there's something heroic maybe to the Skeksis in that. They believe that they can change prophecy. They believe they can change the future. I mean, that's a meaningful thought to have. That's weird when prophecy is at the heart of of a hero's story or journey because it's kind of like it's destined to happen. The Matrix supposedly, at least in the first one, was destined to happen. Luke Skywalker is destined to happen. And it's sort of like regardless of what you, to do, you do, this is Jesus Christ Superstar's plot too. Regardless of what you do, your actions are laid out in front of you and you're just hitting the points. And so in that sense, the idea of a chosen one in a story, it's kind of a letdown, you know, or it's kind of, I don't know, you don't have, and I don't know if this is always the intention, but you don't have the sense of self. Maybe why as a kid, this is why I wasn't big on Jesus' story and all that. It's just kind of like, where is the humanity and choice to have done these things if you're just a piece in someone else's plan? And that's a philosophical question. That's the oldest philosophical question. Why are we here? Do we have free will? Those are two questions, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I guess it's in this movie, you know, because Jen is supposedly destined to do something. But I don't know. I, I I get the idea of a chosen one. It gives immediate importance to your central character, but at the same time, and I don't think I did this as a child, but the, ta- the takeaway from those stories is it doesn't matter what we do. Everything's already been pre-planned, and we're just moving along like a work day. And I hate my work day. I hate the mechanicalness of counting down to when I have to shower, counting down to when I have to leave for the train, counting down to when I get there early so I can take a walk before work, counting down each hour for the tasks. I mean, it's all so plotted in and mechanical that don't you want to change it up? Don't you want some risk? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm getting off topic here. Appreciate you sticking with it. Maybe it's just because you're watching the film and watching these two puppets sleep. Nothing involves less effort than a puppet sleeping. That's not true. Look at her. Jeez. Well, she's waking up. That's why. I'd like to be the puppeteer who was in charge of sleeping puppets or puppets at the morgue. Morgets. Similar to Muppets. Hmm. This part in the comic book, I remember, is being very frightening. They go into, because I think the puppets themselves are about to look at drawings on the wall that maybe go through the history, or maybe they go through the prophecy. I mean, we'll, we'll see in a moment. 
but they sort of walk you through what's happened. And I think because in the comic book it was an illustration in an illustration that probably stuck in my mind. There's so much dread in this movie. Which again, it's dramatic license. I think as a child you go to stories for this sort of dramatic license, but to really think about it, what this movie is teaching you is how we move around memory and how we move around the real world. Their race of fellow Gelflings was wiped out. And I think this is one of the places where it happened. So they avoid it. It's grown over with nature. It should look beautiful, but it's still sort of eerie because it has echoes of this past. And again, I, I'm sure the setting scared me as a kid. It's partly music. It's partly knowing what's happening and it's what they're saying. But I, I, what was this area for me in the real world? What had this resonance of sort of, I mean, look at that. There's something sad to that. There's also some frightening foreshadowing to that because she gets strapped to a mind-controlled chair later in the movie. So there you see, actually there you see the Ursgex, the two creatures when they were one by the crystal. There you have Gelflings looking kind of like Mayans. It's interesting that she's illiterate, he is not. You are seeing a little bit of the backstory here. Enough so it doesn't seem out of place later when the two creatures merge. Oh, that really is Mayan design. Look at that. Do you like my two-book knowledge of Mayan culture thanks to the 2012 fears of late 90s? So they know what the Dark Crystal is, but they didn't know that was a part of it. That's interesting. There's this scary creature. I remember his entrance in the comic book was a little different. This, but both were startling. Such a sad, whimpering character that almost has a Muppet's voice. Like of everyone in this movie, I feel like he almost sounds like a Muppet. But he's just a turncoat, just like your typical Starscream-like character, Cobra Commander-like character, whimpering turncoat, using people for his own purpose. Because in a way, he's angry at the other Skeksis. I'm talking about the Chamberlain here. He's angry at the other Skeksis and wants to show them and get back in their... Either defeat them or get back in the good graces, and he needs them to do it. So there is that weird mixed combination sort of thing. It's interesting. It's really... Actually, really an interesting character. He's the one Skeksis we get some insight to. We don't even get insight into the mystics. Maybe because since they're all pacifists, their personalities are pretty drab. But we see him the most... He's one of the most memorable characters in this movie because of his voice and how he sounds. Look how sad, or hear how sad he is, but look at him move. Oh my God. That turn of voice is terrifying. Yeah, he's not good news. He's bad news. So this part of the movie coming up, I think it was the saddest for me because you do see some creatures die in this part coming up you also see some puppets that are impressive we'll see in a minute yeah here they come these are called land striders i think they kind of look like rabbits but not really they're giant elephant-like creatures and it's interesting because to look at them i mean even as a kid to look at them you can see how they work as puppets there are people hunched over on stilts. You can see where their actual arms are. 
You can see where their back legs are. You can see how these work as puppets, but it doesn't, I don't know why it doesn't take me out of the illusion. I mean, I, I almost see the puppeteers, I feel like. I can almost see their outlines. But I buy it, I believe it. Look at those things. They, everything's got like a fish look to it, squid look to it. So it's interesting. Again, to go back to that super special, I was fascinated. And these landsliders, landstriders were one of the things in it. I think they showed how they worked. So maybe that's I went into this knowing that. But there is something interesting about... <laughs> Jesus. There is something interesting about seeing or knowing how the illusion works but still buying into it. And that's at the core of the Muppets. I mean, if you ever see Jim clips of Jim Henson and Kermit the Frog on like the Tonight Show. Jim Henson's not a ventriloquist. He's not hiding the fact that he's voicing this character. He's got his hand in the frog and, and Kermit the Frog will be talking as 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 uh, as a guest. God, I'm moving my hand right now like I got the puppet. And you buy it. You know, you look right into it and you buy it. You want to talk creepy. There's, there's probably been a few, but there was a special I saw as a child, possibly called Muppets on Muppets or something like that. And it involved the Muppets, the characters, you know, possibly Scooter, but I don't remember who, telling you, the audience, how Muppets were made, how they're fabricated, how they're built, how they're puppeteered. So it was sort of like these people who are aware of their, in quotes, God, telling you that they're fake and here's how it worked. I don't know. It's bizarre. And, and there's, I guess that's that suspension of disbelief that comes in puppetry. And we don't have it as much with CGI because CGI is never a tangible thing. You'll never reach out and touch a computer image but puppets we know they're built we can actually see them and we know it's again computer graphics are impressive i'm not putting down that technology i'm just saying a difference here is that instead of the typing of the keystrokes that creates something that doesn't exist these puppets are manipulated into real time real world and there's something striking about that so that even when we're kind of seeing like on the muppet show and on sesame street you see the rods that operate their arms they don't hide that but you buy it, you don't question it, or at least I didn't. They have their personality, and that's a great way to tell a story, I guess. Especially a story like this that is about the underlying, I don't know, there's something in the Dark Crystal that might be telling kids your parents aren't honest with you. Something in this that might be telling you the morals you were given, because Jen is given some morals by the mystics. this poor guy, that those morals might not be 100% accurate or true. And I think having that angle, having that element in, um, in the film done through puppets, that might be why this spoke to me, you know, because parents are gonna aren't necessarily going to speak to me that way at seven or eight years old. Wow, there's a lot of dialogue in this scene that is unnerving. This is a weird fetishist kind of thing, which is fine, but just as a kid, this terrified me. Look at that poor pod person sitting in that chair. Look at these poor, they all look like Ziggy from the comic strip Ziggy. And nobody wants to look like Ziggy. This one looks like Ziggy after a meth bender. But what was I saying? I guess, yeah, there's uh, d doing stories with puppets, teaching people things with puppets, even just the alphabet, but, but, deeper, darker philosophical stories. Doing that with puppets, I think, allows kids the chance to find it on their own because it's not their parents telling them to do something. It's, you know, it's, it's something 
extraordinary, wonderful, yet handcrafted, and we fall for it. I mean, I don't remember the age where I realized Muppets were puppets. I feel like I must have known, but it never, I never challenged that. I never, you know, like, eventually I loved figuring out how did special effects work? You know, how do they make those ships in the Star Wars movies? How, you know, later, much later, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, but various movies. How did these things work? Muppets are not something I ever questioned or like, how did they get them to ride the bike? How are they in that scene with that person? Because they're not hiding what they are. This movie's got a little bit of that. You know, how do they do all of this? But I get it. I get how these puppets work. So I'm willing to watch it in its entirety, in this film's entirety. Pop out your eye. Did they already pop out her eye? I think they did. That's why she's sniffing. They have her eyeball. You know, that's not really gross. Yeah, this is the scene that kind of saddens me. This is the scene that's kind of hard for me. Because those Landstriders die. Or one of them at least dies. No, they both die in a horrible, horrible deaths. And because they're pack animals. Maybe that's why. It's one of the few examples in this movie of, of a pack animal. Because for the most part, all the creatures on this planet live on their own. Do their own thing. But here, they're, they're kind of beasts of burden. There's a lot of tension in this scene, actually. It's also, that's weird. The one moment of blue screen I can identify from memory, at least in the movie, it was just then when, when Jen is on the Landstrider's back with the sky behind him. I have no idea why that's blue screen because they're filming this with a backdrop or outdoors. All this is either you're very well lit or they built the set outside. So why was that blue screen? I don't know if it was a last minute shot or, or, or why. It doesn't make sense to me because this isn't blue screen. That looks pretty impressive. Close cuts here. Avoid seeing blood, maybe. Here it goes. This is sad. So this one squeals as it as it dies, sacrificing itself to kill this other Garthen, and then this poor one is clamped to bits. This is a this is actually really hard for me to watch right now. This is a rough scene. This is the one moment. This is the darkest moment to me in the movie, and that's hard because they don't come back. <laughs> I think we see later in the movie that Pod people come back. That you know Skeksis and Mystics converge, but. Those Landstriders are dead. Here, and I remember this. I think I may have had a poster of this. I'm not sure, but I remember this image from the comic book. Her with the wings. Nothing is going to be more Brian Froud in this movie than her with those fairy wings. Because that's what um that's what he's known for drawing. And it's a big reveal. I think it probably gets an applause at showings, and yet it's it's, it's a little not mundane, but it's a little reserved. It's interesting that it's a little uh little held back, a little reserved. And she uses them again, I think. It's kind of out of left field, but they explain it as a gender issue. Strange little gender issue in this movie. She's a girl, she has wings. Boys don't have wings. It's not the worst lesson. I mean, there's maybe there's in their world a genetic reason. It's a little strange. So this also in the comic book was a bigger moment, I think. The entrance might have even been night in the drawings, but I just remember this entrance as being huge. And frightening. Is it echoed in Lord of the Rings? In Return of the King, do they enter a castle in a similar way through a mouth? It seems familiar to me. It's also odd that someone would sculpt a backdoor entrance into a mouth in this planet's reality. So, so noisy. That thing is so noisy. They show us these guys again walking through the fields. 
It's everything. They arrive. We'll see. But they arrive right at the right moment in this movie. So it's almost like they know how long it'll take. They know the timing. It was destined to be. So they just follow the route. They could have gotten there early by hundreds of years or even earlier that day. They didn't have to follow the prophecy. So it's odd that that's what the mystics um, are doing. This part was gruesome in the comic system. All of this might have been the third issue. Again, they were all combined into one volume, but because just it's bad news for everyone, and everyone looks like they die at least at one point here. And I don't know. Even as an adult, I could probably be fooled into thinking at least a couple of these deaths were real. Of course, there's always fake, you know, the fake deaths. We we get that in most movies. And as a child, I don't know when you eventually figure that out because I'm sure it's tr- it tricks you for a while. Why would Jen die here, as is about to happen? the first false death. Why would that happen kind of thing? Also, how did he get ahead of them? Chamberlain is now ahead of them, whereas he was following them before. He might, Maybe he knows a route. I guess he wasn't tied up in the Landstrider battle. So I'm trying to remember, was he watching? Is that how? But he got there before they did. He had to sneak in too, though. God, he's like Gordon Jump in that Different Strokes episode. And by that, I mean Emmy-nominated but never winning. Oh, and Creepy. I do like those moments. He gets stabbed in his hand and we see his brother amongst the mystics also getting, also bleeding green blood, I might add. All of those moments were big to me as a kid. I, I thought they were amazing. It, maybe it's the, the, the twin fetish thing or whatever, but just what happens to one is clearly going to happen to the other. And I, I like that. I like that aspect of storytelling, that conjunction, that whatever it is. And it's key to the characters. And that he's so passive about it while this guy was so... The the mystic is so like, oh, so my hand. While uh, this character is like, ah, my hand. These are great impressions, by the way. If you're not watching the movie, you probably totally know who I'm talking about. But I don't know. There's something of interest in that. I guess these two are the comedy of the film. I was saying before there's no comedy. But these two Skeksis, this somewhat effeminate one and this chubby chubby royal one they they they're a little out of character i guess it makes sense but you don't have the other skexies being like that huge cowards acting like they don't want to touch something filthy like a gelfling i feel like that's not all the skexies but that's these two i could do without the screaming a little bit it's weird the the chubbier one the deeper voiced one the, there's a the Brian Frout drawing of him was one of the earlier drawings I saw, and it was that Skeksis head coming out of the elaborate collar. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand that that was a, like a Renaissance or whatever collar. I didn't get what I was looking at. They all have them. They have these these uh, ornate neck hoods or whatever as part of their clothing. And I don't think I, I got it as a kid. That one, you can see all of his bones. It's so gross. I don't. I just didn't know what it was in the drawings. I'd like to go back and see if I make sense of it now, or if they were abstract drawings. I'm not sure. I like that one's voice. That's actually the most human voice in the movie, too, next to Jen's. He doesn't have the gnarled kind of saliva-stoked voice of the other ones. He's sort of the Shadow Stevens of the other Skeksis. Probably hosts the radio program and. Maybe it's the lower right square and there, Hollywood squares, maybe. Hensonwood squares. They're creepy, though. <laughs> I like that. That one looks very British. 
<laughs> I guess they all look British, if that means anything. Sorry, Britain, by the way. Uh, there, are, there are disgusting things that look American, such as our president. Sorry, I'm just taking a sip of water because this is a lot of talking. So yeah, the, the, the fake out, Jen's alive. And smartly, everybody does something. I think that's always good. Fizzgig here is kind of doing something. I think he's helping rescue Jed. He's not just a cute character for no reason. You can notice that in movies when there are characters who serve no function. A um, couple of years after this, and I've never seen all of it, so I don't know why I'm bringing it up. But Disney released a movie called The Black Chris The Black Cauldron, not The Black Crystal, Black Cauldron, 1985. A similarly very dark children's animated movie based on a series of books. Um, there was a horned king in it, which was this, uh, grotesque villain, but there's a, there's a, I don't know what his name is now. I'm forgetting. There's this furry Gertie, maybe this furry looking character. Who's like, kind of like a dog, but bipedal cute. I think there were stuffed animals of him was kind of the mascot and he's cute. But I don't know if he actually does anything in the movie. He might actually die. I have to see the movie before I talk about it in an audio commentary for the dark crystal that I'm putting up on Patreon. This is torturous when he starts, um, he's draining Kira's life essence. And I was scared for this because in the comic book, this is a terrifying couple pages. She's being bathed in this pink light. She looks so helpless. And I was scared of it as a child and I would go back to it. I would flip to that page. I was always a little nervous to flip to the page. And then I would and I would look at the drunks. I don't think I fully understood what was happening. Similar to this now, it's just, it's eerie lighting. She's obviously in peril. And it's that weird thing. I think comic books did this a lot when they put the female character in peril. There's a strange, twisted sort of drama to that. That may not be right. I don't know. Exploitative a bit. It's part of the story here. And she doesn't necessarily just need rescuing. She does things in the context of the story. But in the comic book, I was terrified of those pages. So when this scene came up and I was watching the movie... I think I probably looked away. I don't think I could. Similar to, I think it was the same weekend I saw Clash of the Titans and I couldn't watch the Medusa scenes. I think I had a hard time watching this scene. And it's because of those drawings and how helpless and hurt she looked in those looked in those drawings. And it's just the way she's in peril is pretty bad. That he looks kind of like Baron Strucker from uh, from the Avengers: Age of Ultron movie. That's what I'm thinking, and I'm sure you're thinking the same. Why wouldn't you be? So we've got a gruesome death coming up, I think, right? If I'm remembering right. Because the Skeksis are connected to the uh, Mystics, the way this guy dies is it's too bad for the Mystic, who didn't wish any harm, but it probably accepts his faith nonetheless. There are some cute creatures there. I like that dinosaur puppet. I never noticed that before. I always thought things here were just furry balls rolling around, but there's actually some pretty, you barely see them, Animal puppets that are pretty nice. This is a nice scene, actually. Probably was always looking away. A lot of variety of characters that I assume are always like background drawings and the Brian Fry drawings. Now, some of these animals might die, too, because they're pushing him into the fire. Please get off, guys. I'd hate to think you go with him when he dies. Okay, so that's how that shuts off. See, there's the science. They have a device built with mirrors. So as he falls to his blue screen death, this poor son of a bitch erupts. He's gone in a flash with no sound. That's an interesting choice. Just a burst. 
He's vaporized. And they're fine. They keep going on with their lives. Painful death for the Skeksy. Quick death for the Mystic. Circle of blah, 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 blah. Dasylvania Lion King. Thanks, gross animals. Thanks, furry caterpillar. Pretty realistic, Agra. <laughs> After having her save, telling her she's too late. Also, that's an interesting line. She says the Skeksis will have the power over the stars. I didn't. Re I don't know if I know that that's the point of the crystal. They want to harness its powers, but power over the stars? They are creatures from another planet, which would make them aliens. In the backstory, um, the Skeksis and Mystics, the creature they were to begin with, the Erskek or whatever, is from a planet outside of all the other planets, I think it's described as. They, they were exiles, too. There was 12 of them, maybe, initially. They were exiled for experimenting with something or other. I, don't, I should really read these fucking comic books before I talk about them. might be helpful to understand the overall story here of this film. Of this film. Puppets falling. Hard to do. You're in an oubliette. No, you're not. That would be four more years in a different movie. But it's like an oubliette. Look for 70s glam stars to show you the way. Some creepy sounds. It's actually a pretty frightening scene. Uh, they're using, again, just simple lighting props. Doesn't quite explain why that's how the Garthen look, but it's eerie. This is creepy. Just a whole lot of peril in this movie. It's weird, the lighting, like the red, which is the glow or pink or whatever of the crystal, that shaft. I don't know. I, that's something I also really remember from the comic book. There's something about how they drew it there and it had such a grandiose sense. Here, I mean, it's a little set, but I guess it goes from the caverns. Yeah, I guess it's a hole that starts in the underneath the castle. And the crystal, from what I understand, is, is suspended or floating in it. It's, it's a deep, uh, I don't know, it, it's hellish though, right? I mean, this I think as a kid, I, I probably merged this shit. Yeah, I bet I merged this memory with Empire Strikes Back. The Carbonite Chamber in Empire Strikes Back, which is a pretty shallow just drop, obviously, for, obviously for Han Solo into the Carbonite Chamber. When I saw that in 1980, my memory from that has always been him slowly being lowered down, almost like a castle, like the inside of a castle turret or something, looking outside, seeing stuff. I wonder if it's a mesh of that scene, because I think I would have merged the two. They're both frightening chasms, lots of smoke and weird glowing. Huh. I say, huh. My voice keeps cracking because I've been talking for a while, but that's that's a possible bit of confusion as a child i think you know because when you're not i mean i saw this on vhs but when you're not watching movies every day constantly you know you just as a kid i think you have the memory but you also have the memory of when you saw it and also you're not having the memory thinking i have to remember this movie you're experiencing it so to actually think back to it you're probably meshing and merging other emotions that had that feeling some of these mystics look identical. The, the one on the far left is thinner. It's a thinner looking mystic. But unlike the Skeksis, I feel like the mystic puppets, there isn't as much variety in them. Maybe maybe if I look closer. I mean, that one's got a, a scarf over around its neck. 
is everything male? Are all these creatures male? I, maybe they're genderless, or maybe that's not explained. I feel like all the Skeksis are clearly masculine monsters, the monarchy, or whatever. But I, I, so I don't know. I don't know if all the mystics are. They're split, but that can mean anything. They don't really explore that. Maybe they don't, they don't have to. I don't know. Not sure. Great theme, though. The music of this is very... It's, it's a little John Will, Williams-y. It makes me think of Indiana Jones, I guess. Maybe it's the horns. It sounds a little bit like uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant theme. So maybe the mystical inherency of that. Crystal and Ark of the Covenant. I, I, I think there were probably a lot of movies I saw as a kid where the central thing was an artifact. You know, some sort of item. I guess MacGuffin is the term that... Uh, God, I almost called him Shakespeare. That uh, the guy with the silhouette, Alfred Hitchcock, created that concept as a device that doesn't really do anything, but it gets the plot rolling. The crystal and the Ark of the Covenant—they do do something. They do something beyond the realms of explanation. There's no definite rationale for what the crystal is, as we'll see in a little bit, or what it's doing. Again, the backstory of these other books. Make it seem like it's kind of an interdimensional gateway. I think it's what the uh, creatures use to travel to this world. But again, in the movie, it's just sort of a vague, ominous... Like, it's just it's a slab of rock, of glowing rock that looks like it rose up from hell. I'd rather have that idea than you know, a concrete definition, I guess, to, 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 to how, what it is and how it works. I mean, this is definitely a fantasy movie, a mystical movie. It's not science fiction, even though I guess, like we were saying before, they are, we, by the way, it was me, I was saying. Some of these characters are aliens, because I guess they come from another plane, and everything in this movie is alien to us, but it's, it's fantasy, and God, I just don't normally like fantasy, but this, this movie has gotten me captivated. I've, I've been, it's been in my head, you know, since childhood. And it's not that I, I I don't go back and watch it that often. I mean, this is the first time in, I don't know, I guess the last time I saw this, maybe I saw it on a big, I saw, I think I saw a big screen of screening of it at the Brattle Theater, which is a uh, independent uh, art house in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I think back in 2000, Jesus, four, <laughs> maybe I saw this. So that's, that's 17 years ago. And even growing up, I don't think this is a movie I return to that often. I definitely watched it. I had it on VHS. Um, you know, it's weird. I, I bought it on a clamshell, green clamshell VHS sometime in the 90s. I don't think I ever watched that VHS. I mean, I think I, you know, I had it. I watched, but I don't think I watched it. It's one of those things I have on the shelf because I'm a fan of The Dark Crystal. Of course I want to own it. Um, that, that tape, by the way, was in this was lost to me along with uh, Annie Hall on VHS and the original 1987 VHS release of Transformers the movie, a tape I had had since 1987 that I watched daily for a while in my life, which was a prized possession of mine. All three of them were in a backpack of mine that was stolen back in, I don't know if it was 2003 maybe 2004 why they i guess i was taking them all to a friend's house saying we're going to watch one of these and much uh much to her benefit it was stolen so we didn't have to watch transformers the movie 
But back to this movie, The Dark Crystal. I love how the Skeksis just panic. It's weird. They're frail. They're very frail and just terrified of this little girl. And all they do is call other things to kill for them. Cowards. I guess earlier I was thinking maybe there's there's a, a bit of a good side to them because they're scientific and they're emotional driven. But they've also just, they've lived too long. They're so withered and, and cranky. There's that great voice one again. There's a lot going on in these puppet sets. I always think about this with this movie is how much is going on. Because, you know, traditional puppetry that I understand is you have the raised set. Oh, nice jump. That was probably all wires and cable. That's a pretty big stunt for a puppet. But normally it's a raised platform and people are underneath it walking the puppets on rods. But there's so much, so many angles being shown in this. So many ways where you can see the surroundings that they must have employed a lot of tricks some of these are people probably in puppets you know in the puppets operating them some's probably cable and wire it's some it's i don't know stuff like that it's it's when there's that much effects going god she looks so coked out poor 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 kira this is actually pretty harsh i'm stopping what i'm saying because this this shows that jim henson to some degree didn't give a fuck he told a good story but she's she's going to get stabbed in the spine. That's a horrendous death, as I learned from King Lear. And they're about to stab her in the... Here he goes. Okay, I'm sorry. I spoiled that for you because there it is. Jesus. God, that is a vicious death of a character. I think it's heroic. I was... I know I had this conversation um, with my girlfriend once before. Is that a is that a heroic death or is that a sticker in a fridge kind of comic book death that Kira gets stabbed? I think it's valiant. I mean, I, this is still Jen's story. He is the main protagonist. So I guess we had to get the crystal to him so he could do this, which is put the crystal shard back in the crystal and blow up the world, whatever. But I like Kira in this movie. I, uh, she's an incredibly st- strong female character, I think. She seems to know a little more than Jen. She seems to be a little more of a fighter. She's a little more active. She just And she just sacrificed her life. Not necessarily intentionally. I don't think she was like, kill me so you can do that. But she, uh, she the, the, Jen would have failed without her. I do think she's a great character. Now, this is just a nightmare to me. Body horrors as the Garthen fall apart. They're hollow inside. It's so weird to me. I don't know if like the idea is that they're inanimate. They're drones. I don't know if they're supposed to be a spirit that leaves them, but they're crumbling apart. That, that I mean, that used to scare me because there was still that question of what are they living? Are they not living? Are they dead now? Were they dead before? What happens to their consciousness if they had it? That was always a fear of mine with magic too. This is unrelated, but as a kid, like if there was something and somebody would be turned into something, you know, like if there's a, a, a cartoon I'm watching and like Tila was turned into an ice statue, you know, or this book I read as a child with Donald Duck where a witch turns him into a watermelon. There was always on my mind the idea of what happens to their thoughts, what happens to their consciousness, you know, are they, are they still thinking that everything ceased to be? And even when they come back, where were they for that time? Do they know that they're a watermelon? Do they know they're a statue? Can they 
still be aware like that for some reason always terrified me so i think similarly the garth and kind of crumbling there it was like were they ever living to begin with oh help fizz gig um were they ever living what happened to their souls and is it a horrible death yeah, I think I was scared. Are these horrible, torturous deaths? And what happens to our thoughts? The electrodes that make our thoughts was probably my fear. I saw a puppet crying. So this is a calamity. Um, you know, it's weird. Again, with CGI's, there would probably be a lot of explosions here. There would probably be a lot of just overdone. No one could ever survive a destruction. But because these are all physical sets being that were built, now coming undone... With people, you know, pouring in, even just the subtleness of a couple rocks here and dust there. I mean, this is a believable moment of danger. How those mystic puppets are, are pretty impressive. I kind of just want to sit here and watch the destruction, but I guess we should be commenting on it continually. No one gets hit by the rocks. It's a safe fall. And then this, again, this sequence, that's not the greatest special effect. That's kind of like a video game laser beam or something or how they would have done an X-Men movie in 1979. But this sequence in the comic book made more sense to me, even though it doesn't make much sense. You've got the Skeksis being magnetized, almost pulled back into the mystics who are rising up basically to mount them. It looks like they're going to merge, but this I don't as a child, had I seen this before reading the comic, I don't know what... I would have made of this. I don't know what kids made of this because it's this is your trippy Joshua light show. They just morphed into these horrifying <laughs> half eraser head, half aliens from close encounters of the third kind creatures that are spectral, that are hovering, that are just unnerving. And, and the drawings in the comics were a little more approachable. They looked a little more solid. They weren't as transparent and ghostly. Look at those hands. It seems like a worse life almost. What do these creatures do? Are they aware of what they just did? Do they know the evil they accomplished as the Skeksis and the uh, blaseness they had as the mystics? Do they know and feel remorse? I don't know if I was asking those questions as a kid because I guess I was just too scared. And then probably as a teen, I thought, all right, so now they're otherworldly beings. That's some weird blue screen again. So those puppets must be a big light trick. That is some weird blue screen. Um, I don't know. You know, I think in my teens, I probably thought the, you know, higher consciousness. But now I'm just like, fuck these guys, right? They still did what they did. Yeah, you made us whole, but uh, yeah, that's the, that's the point of the movie, Tim. If you didn't sync this up to your movie and you're just hearing me ramble, um, the Mystics and Skeksis form these single tall beings that are, are speaking very quietly with the voice of the narrator, actually, from the beginning of the movie. They seem very, I don't know, very uh, zen-like, god-like. And there's all this triumphant music that kind of makes you think that they're I don't know, they're, they're important beings, but they've done some horrible things. <laughs> At least 50% of this creature has done some horrible things. I just wonder, do they feel remorse? That's all I can think of now. They're beasts. Look at these things. I know they're supposed to look so innocent, but these guys caused the problem. Fuck you guys. No, of course not. Again, that's the moral of the movie.
not even moral, but exploration. That humanity, which is whatever everything in the story, I guess, is a stand-in, is an imperfect creature, and it's capable as much of probably more destruction than it is beauty. There they go up into the Atari logo. You know, it's weird. Like the light effects, not as look like a bunch of sperms heading out that hole, which is exactly what sperms do. Well, it's a triangle hole, so they are going into the hole. Bunch of sperms going into a triangle hole. Um, again, if you haven't synced this up, I don't need to explain that to you. But um, I don't know. I, I this uh, everything is right in the world with your crystal castle roller controller video game. I do wonder what happened outside, like how everything felt as this occurred. But um, it's an abrupt ending. Uh, but what was I saying? Yeah, I think this movie just makes me think, you know, humanity is not great. <laughs> We're capable of living amongst nature. We're capable of that, sure. We're capable of destroying nature. We're capable of greed and pass- pacificity. I don't know. It's an interesting lesson. I, the takeaway from this music and everything is not one of feeling great. <laughs> this isn't a movie that I think you leave as a kid. And again, I don't quite remember getting to the end of the movie as a kid. I more remember the comic where it's a little, the comic lingers a little bit. And I, I think it probably has some narration or captions that are a little more upbeat. This isn't a movie to leave feeling good, which I think is great. I mean, Jesus, Jim Henson and Frank Oz and the rest of these puppeteers. Jesus. <laughs> you don't give us... He- the, 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 the creatures at the end are not heroic. The Gelfling are. The Gelfling are very heroic. And, and Agra is powerful. They're good characters. But yeah, I don't... I'm just amazed. I'm amazed at something this dark. I mean, it makes sense why it's stuck with so many people. But again, I don't know who's seeing this now. I, I, I should talk to Bob. I should talk to other friends of mine who have kids and ask them, do you show this to your kids and what do they think? Because for me, it's, it's more of everyone I talk to, it's more of a memory. With the internet now, sure, people put pictures up. You see, here's a picture of Fizzgig. Here's my drawing of a Landstrider, which I saw on Instagram the other day. Someone did an amazing drawing of a Landstrider. But who is actually going back to watch it? Or are we just holding on to this memory this emotional memory of how bleak a feeling this movie was. I mean, this this isn't an uneasy, scary movie. And I think, once more, just to wrap it up here, I, I, I think that's good to experience as a kid. I don't think I could sit through, you know, a, a Bergman film festival at age seven and contemplate death. And it's not even death, but the duality of, of just evil. And I don't even know if it's good. Because, again, the mystics aren't good. They're good enough. Oh my God, I don't know. This is just, this is something that cast a huge shadow over my childhood and yet not something I saw that often. The designs stay with me. The mood stays with me. That theme stays with me. But yeah, I mean, I've only watched this movie a handful of times. And that's rare for movies that I felt like I loved as a child. I watched them all the time once VCRs made that possible. But this all the way through maybe three times four times in my life is that it i've watched this all the way through four times in my life and then bits and pieces here and there i was fortunate enough to see it on the big screen but most of the time it's on vhs so yeah 
this is what Jim Henson does, the Jim Henson Company, the puppets. I, I think they really, maybe again, it's maybe it's my age. Maybe it's the age that I saw this, but this really gets in the skull. And it's not a movie when it's in there. It's something else. The imagery of these puppets and a mood that goes with them. And again, I got to go back to that fucking comic book. I think having that super special comic book is probably part of what made this linger so much. Because without YouTube and without the internet, yeah, when you look around your room as a child, the images you saw would stoke that memory. I'd have a Pac-Man poster on the wall, so I remember Pac-Man as part of my childhood. Luke Skywalker on Bespin is part of my childhood because of this paint-by-numbers Luke Skywalker painting I had hanging on the wall. Because this comic book, tattered and battered, was always in my room, first in a bookshelf, then in a box or wherever, Dark Crystal has always been in my room in part of my childhood as an image, as the title, as that logo. Not so much as this movie. The ideas and the design work is what I take away from this. And that's that's fine. That's good. Right? Wow, you went a long time listening to me talk. Hopefully you had some imagery synced up with it. Otherwise, sorry. <laughs> this is what I sound like when I'm just speaking aloud in the bathroom. Oh, I didn't watch this in the bathroom. I watched this on a tiny screen with a microphone. Thanks for supporting us, everyone. 20th Century Popcast. It's a weekly show at 20podcast.com. Promotion, promotion. Patreon. So that was something uh, called the show. And that was something long. You know, thanks for listening to it. Uh, the 20th Century Popcast Patreon page should be going up this November. So if you are enjoying the show, maybe think about donating. We'll keep you updated at www.20podcast.com, the main website for news, past episodes, as well as each week's new episode. I am so tired of talking. Uh, subscribe to us if you like me being tired of talking on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher now and other Android apps. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Subcultist. You can follow Bob, my co-host, who wasn't here today, but will be back next week. He's at RH Canning, also on uh, Twitter. And that really is all my voice can say uh, for today. Thank you for listening, everyone. Catchphrase!